What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Today, one of the hottest topics of conversation in my community of librarians is all about makerspaces. You may already be familiar with a makerspace, and you may have one in your own local public or school library. But if you don't, let me tell you that makerspaces are places where people in a community can experiment and use technologies and tools to create, innovate, and design. The technologies and tools these spaces provide may be more expensive than one person can own, or they may be the kinds of things you need to play with before you buy. These include things like 3D printers and scanners, Arduinos, which are microcontrollers, or Raspberry Pi, which is not a food, but a very small computer. Makerspaces are not just about technology. Sometimes they include the tools and materials you would see in a wood shop, or even plastics and other materials used to make things. But makerspaces are more than just the technology and tools. They are really focused on education and learning. Many makerspaces will provide classes or instruction, but even if they don't have this kind of formal training, they are all about bringing people together to learn. I've seen teens and children in makerspaces teaching each other without any kind of intervention, so they end up being great places for informal instruction too. For me, one of the most exciting things about makerspaces in any community is that they are perfectly designed to be places where we can all practice and learn some important 21st century literacy skills. Skills like critical thinking, communication, collaboration, and creativity. These are the exact skills that are learned in these kinds of spaces as people solve problems, express ideas, work together, and create new things. These literacy skills are going to become more and more critical in the lives of children, since these are the very skills they are going to need as they grow and build a future for themselves in a world where innovation is moving faster than we can keep up. So here at Rachel's World, we're all about cool makerspaces, especially in libraries, since we like to encourage spaces and processes where everyone can play and experiment while learning important literacies. Historical figures can sometimes be larger than life, but they led real lives as well, like something as simple as telling their children a bedtime story. Today, Rachel visits with children's book author Philip Steed, who, along with his illustrator wife Erin, brought to life a bedtime story that Mark Twain made up for his daughters. It was never published in his lifetime. Steed shares the backstory of the recent discovery of the manuscript and he and his wife being sought out to repurpose and expand the story. Philip and Aaron Steed are author and illustrator of the Caldecott winning A Sick Day for Amos McGee. Together, they also created the acclaimed Bear Has a Story to Tell and Lenny and Bruce. Here's Rachel and Philip Steed. We're on the phone today with Philip. Welcome, Philip. Hi, thanks for having me. I am so excited to have you here today and to introduce you to my listeners. I hope they are familiar with your name and your work previously, but I am excited especially to introduce them to your newest work, which is a envisioning of a fairy tale by Mark Twain. And I think that that 
essence just makes it intriguing enough. So to start out, tell us, how did you get involved with this exciting project? Yeah, there's a, a pretty interesting backstory to the project before it ever even landed on our desks. Um, back in, well, I guess we ought to really start way back in the in the year 1879. So uh, Mark Twain was in the habit of telling bedtime stories to his daughters, much like uh, most parents. Um, and the way that this would normally work is at the end of a long day, the girls would come in to his writing studio and they would say, okay, now it's time for you to tell us a story. And they would bring with them a magazine or a newspaper or something like that. They would open up to a page and they would point to an image. And that image would become a story prompt for Mark Twain or for Samuel Clemens, since he's at home with his family. We know that he did this possibly dozens, maybe hundreds of times even. uh, But we only know of one time where he deemed it successful enough that he wanted to write the story down on paper afterwards. So we knew about this from his diaries, from his journals, but what we didn't think existed were the actual notes. They were assumed lost to history. So fast forward all the way to the year 2011, a researcher from Winthrop University named John Bird was out in Berkeley, California at the Mark Twain archive. And he was there because he was writing a Mark Twain cookbook, which is a Pretty strange thing that he was working on, but what he asked the archive to do was to pull out any folder that had anything at all to do with food inside of it. So one folder got pulled out that was just labeled oleomargarine. And when they opened it up, instead of finding, you know, like recipes or anything that had to do with food at all, what they found were 16 pages of handwritten notes by Mark Twain for this children's story that he began back in the year 1879 with his two daughters. In the Mark Twain universe, this was a huge discovery. It's not every day that you stumble across something brand new that hasn't been discovered by Mark Twain. So at that point, the notes start bouncing around the country a little bit. They go from Berkeley out to Hartford, Connecticut, where the Mark Twain Museum is. And it was the people at the museum that really recognized that maybe there was an opportunity to take these notes and find a way to create a finished book from them. So they began contacting publishing houses in New York City. And each publishing house, it was up to them to come up with an idea for how this book would be completed. Unbeknownst to us, Doubleday Publishing uh, was submitting a plan wherein I would co-author this book, essentially, with Mark Twain, and my wife, Erin, would come on as the illustrator. So this is in now uh, May of 2014. We get the strangest phone call that I've ever gotten. They said they want you uh, to work on this project. They are not allowed to tell you anything about it. The only thing they they can say is that it involves Mark Twain, and they need you to say yes or no in the next 24 hours. So that was the phone call we got. And it was just such an unusual call, and there was something so intriguing about it that Aaron and I said yes. Maybe if we had known what we were signing ourselves up for, we may have thought better of it. But we said yes, and that's when we were given these 16 pages of notes and were asked over the next almost three years to work on and complete this story. That is such a marvelous story. And it really is intriguing to me that what Mark Twain did was take some information or some inspiration from a piece that his daughters would give him and tell a story, which kind of correlates to what you did. You were given 16 pages of inspiration and you told a story. So it's wonderful how this kind of storytelling pattern has extended over the centuries to create something new and wonderful. So how did you approach this project? What what was the first step that you took? What were some of the kinds of challenges that you faced as you were starting out to create this wonderful book? 
Well, I, the biggest challenge and problem was that we were going to have to find a way to work with Mark Twain, and that is it's no small task. I think my experience with Twain was very similar to most Americans' experience with Twain, uh, in that I read Huckleberry Finn when I was probably about 14 years old. And if I'm going to be completely honest, I probably read the first 50 pages and then read the cliff notes um, so I could complete the essay for English class. And then, you know, in college, probably picked up a few more things. I remember reading a few short stories. I think I read um, some of his travel books, like Innocence Abroad. And so I had a general idea of who Mark Twain is. And Mark Twain is, um, you know, he's an American icon. So he exists in the same category as almost like an Abraham Lincoln or a George Washington. But we had the challenge of having to get to know him not as an American icon, but as an actual person, because we needed to invite him into our studio and begin collaborating with him. Uh, the story wasn't finished, so we needed to take some of uh, what Twain would naturally do as a storyteller, and we had to incorporate our own storytelling instincts, which weren't necessarily always in perfect alignment with what Twain would do. That is a beautiful way to look at it. And I love the finished product because I think that you can completely see each one of your three personalities, particularly as you looked towards doing the text and the pictures together. How did you approach that task of making sure that the pictures and the text were both integral parts of what was happening with the story? So that was an interesting problem for us because Aaron and I are picture bookmakers. Most of our books are 32, maybe 40 pages long. And anybody that loves picture books know that picture books are their own very peculiar art form, where you can't really take the text away from the image or the image away from the text. By contrast, the types of children's stories that Twain would have been familiar with and his daughters would have been familiar with in the 1900s were not what we think of as picture books today. They may have had pictures in them, but they were more along the lines of an illustrated novel or something like that, where the illustrations are more decorations. And one thing that Aaron and I decided very early on is that because we were picture book makers, we didn't want to step too far out of um, our own comfort zone. So we needed to take this very long text that was probably going to be close to, a, close to the length of a novel, but still treat it like a picture book, where every page turn matters, how much text lands on one page versus another page matters. And the, the relationships between text and image are are very important. We also wanted to give Erin enough room where she could have spreads and, and, and pages where just the illustrations could tell the story. That way, Erin um, really became the third voice in the book. I don't think a lot of people often realize how complex that integration between the text and the images are, particularly for a picture book or or an, an illustrated novel as, as this one is. So as you do this and as you see this finished product, what do you hope that you think readers will take away from experiencing this book? Uh, that's always a good question to ask uh, with any book because I think every book has – um, hopefully not a moral, but some kind of meaning within the book. And yet the meaning of the book is not necessarily the thing that I would really like children especially to take away from a story. What I'd really like a child to take away is just the experience of having lived inside of a good story. I think that when you hear a good story, when you experience a good story, a good story is, is an invitation to experience empathy or to practice empathy, even if uh, you know, the characters that you're involved with are make-believe characters, uh, I think it's good practice for when you get out into the real world and have to care about something outside of yourself. And, and so because of that, I think that uh, 
that experience of empathy is what I hope that people and children especially will glean from all of our books, even if that particular meaning is not present or the ultimate focus of, of a particular book. Thank you so much for those insights, Philip. I truly appreciate that. And I am um, so grateful for, again, just for the work you do. I, I do not say that lightly when I think you are significant forces in the field of children's literature today, and you're making it a much better field and a much better place. So keep up the good work. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that, um, you know, what you do is what you do, because there's not many platforms similar to what you guys are doing. So, Well, thank you. Children's book author Philip Steed, talking about his experience of expanding a bedtime story that Mark Twain told his daughters into the picture book, The Purloining of Prince Oleomargarine. Up next, literacy expert and author Pam Allen talks to Rachel about her book, Taming the Wild Text, a valuable resource that helps kids become better readers in the 21st century across the vast spectrum of material available both digitally and in print. She's founding director of LitWorld, a global literacy initiative serving children across the United States and in more than 60 countries. Alan is author of a number of books, including Every Child a Super Reader, Your Child's Writing Life, and What to Read When. Here's Rachel and Pam Allen. We're on the phone today with Pam. Welcome, Pam. Hi, glad to be here. Pam, you are one of those experts that I just love to read everything you write, and I am so excited to introduce you today to my listening audience and explore some of the things that you explore in your own work with them. So let's start out. You, Your newest book is called Taming the Wild Text, and I love that evocative title. Let's start out talking a little bit about what is this book about and how do we help our kids do that thing that's taming the wild text? Yeah, well, I am also really excited about this book because I feel like it's it's coming along at just a timely moment. Um, my colleague, Monica Burns, my co-author on this book, she is an ed tech genius. And she and I have been working together for several years and really thinking about the intersection of how are kids reading in this new era? And can we say that technology is a friend to them and a companion to them in their reading lives rather than kind of like it's an either or experience when in fact, they're sort of making a confluence of their world. And so in Taming the Wild Text, what we really set out to do was to say, what are the kinds of reading um, that our young people are doing in the 21st century? And how can we help them build the habits to manage both the reading they're doing online and the reading they're doing offline and to really think about how the habits of that readership are extending across all those platforms. But we did want to make sure we were embracing the multiplicity of platforms, that the wildness of the text is that it's not existing just in one place anymore. It's really everywhere. That multiplicity of text, I think, is so important. And one of the real issues that I personally see with readers is that to embrace kind of this multiplicity of texts, we have to be a little more critical about what we're reading oftentimes. So what kind of skills do we think we need to have for kids so they really can be those kinds of really critical readers in, in this 21st century amalgamation of texts that we deal with? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the the need to be critical, as you're saying, is more 
crucial than ever before because it is true. Like our kids are being kind of swamped um, in a, in a way. They're just as we are, not even just our kids. You know, how can we keep that critical lens on our reading experience? And for younger, for children especially and young adults, they're newer to this world of reading. So for them to be entering it at just a moment when we've kind of opened the flood, floodgates to every single possible kind of information and non-information coming from everywhere, is, is, it's more important than ever. So in order to think about that, I think one of the ways that we were thinking about what it means to be a critical reader is, one is to say, how can we help our kids grow the muscles to be attentive to their own reading life first. In other words, where am I reading? How am I reading? What kind of things do I want to read? Not just what are people telling me I should read, but because there are a lot of you know perspectives and there are a lot of uh, ideas out there and a lot of different topics and opportunities to read, the critical piece is first in who am I as a reader and who do I want to be as a reader tomorrow? And then the second thing about being a critical reader is to just say, as I read, I'm going to be conscious of who was this writer writing for? Who was this intended audience? And also, um, what what is my relationship with this text? So I was just looking at this yesterday. I was reading a newspaper online, and there was a whole list of articles down at the bottom that I thought were real articles, but it turned out those were paid posts. And so I didn't realize when I opened the one, I thought I was going to be getting advice. It was something about, you know, if you're an early riser, what are three things you need to do the minute you wake up? And I thought, okay, that's good. Um, and I clicked it, and then I realized it was an ad for breakfast cereal. And I was just like, what is this? So I think that's critical means just knowing who the audience is. I, I could still have gotten something out of that article. I'm not saying not to read something that's promoted, but at the same time to kind of know where that person's coming from. Those are incredible insights, Pam. And I, I think one of the things that I really like about it is that it really takes reading to a very personal level. And so what we're doing as we're helping kids develop some of these habits and skills of critical reading, it's more about helping them develop themselves and not necessarily some kind of nebulous skill set. We're trying to teach them how as individuals to apply that skill set in their own lives and their own reading. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, what, what's happened, I think, in the school system over the last decade was there was so much emphasis on standardized testing, you know, a real sense of there must be like 10 things we could teach kids about reading and then they'll be fine. And of course, those of us who love children and love literature know that's just not how reading works. You know, there isn't just one magic bullet that's going to get everyone suddenly reading fluently. And I think that what's happening now, I just find in the work I do in schools, there's a big shift. People saying that's not enough. There aren't, you know, 10 comprehension strategies that are going to just suddenly miraculously turn everyone into readers. That really it is about this identity building and about the long, hard work of making kids feel like the environment for reading belongs to them. And so I think we're in a moment of real transformation right now where I am very excited about that because I think that there's more of an opening now to say, okay, we know that that doesn't work by itself. You can for sure, you know, do a test. Oh, that's fine. But actually the work of the teacher or the parent or the grandparent with the child is really about 
helping them cultivate their self-identity as readers. That's the key to everything right there. I, I couldn't agree more. I do think that is the key. And as a literacy specialist, I, I am giddy, too, about this this great landscape that we're doing that takes reading to a more mental, cognitive place. I know in your book you talk um, about kids learning to read closely, widely, critically, deeply, and socially. We don't have tons of time to go into each one in particular in, in this short interview that we have today. But could you maybe just overview for our listeners what that means and and how it might work if we help our kids learn to read in those kind of cognitive mental ways. Yeah, I mean, I think, too, that, um, you know, in a nutshell, what I really felt like Monica and I were both thinking a lot about was we went back to the sort of seminal moments from our own childhood, because that's where the closely, widely, critically, deeply, and socially came from. I thought about for myself reading Anne of Gables as a child, and the close reading wasn't, I'm reading closely because my teacher told me to answer a question. It was, I was reading closely because I wanted to be Anne. I wanted to be her. So I wanted to like read as closely as I could. What was she saying? What was she doing? What was it that in, in every situation, how is she responding? And that close reading was very authentic to my life as a reader. And then just thinking widely, critically, and deeply, the idea that, that we, whether we're reading informational text or, or, or fiction, we're, we're, we're abundant. And I think that there's something about that reading widely, critically, and deeply, to me, gets at where we think of everything in scarcity form, like, well, you have five vocabulary words you learned today, so now you better read those vocabulary words. Well, that's not how reading works. Reading is messy. Reading is, the, you know, I would say today, my reading life today was completely messy. It was, you know, I started with a Google Doc and a, and a, a joint document that I'm working on with my team at Lit World. I went, I moved right into People Magazine to hear what, you know, there was some great new movie that Angelina Jolie has just done. And I, then the third thing I did was I looked at um, a text message from a friend. And then the fourth thing was I'm reading a mystery. And I have to admit, I did, you know, read a chapter of that over my bagel this morning because I wanted to be sure that I was like not going around with my heart pounding trying to figure out who did it. And I think that. I mean, I happen to be a voracious reader, but you know what? Children want to be voracious. They want to be abundant. They don't want to be so constricted. The idea of reading widely, critically, and deeply is this idea of just, you know, let's just go for it. Let's, let's be broad. Let's be wide. Let's be big. Let's ask questions. And then finally, the idea of being social is I wasn't reading Anne in a vacuum. I was, my social life was about my conversation with Lucy Maud Montgomery in my mind, the author, but it was also with my best friend. We pretended that I was Anne and she was Diana. Somehow I always got to be Anne and she was always Diana. But, you know, it was just like that all the time. And then as an adult, it's the same thing. If I'm reading this mystery, I totally want to share that with my husband. And the social piece is, is so crucial. We think of reading as if it's a lonely thing to do. And, you know, we know that it's not. Pam, I am in awe. I am so grateful for you to come and join us today and 
open this really kind of radical in some ways world to my listeners, because that is the direction that I think literacy and our understanding of literacy is going. So the more we can understand how we read as adults closely, widely, critically, deeply, and socially, and how we can help our children do that, the better off we are. Thank you for just taking a few minutes and introducing those concepts to us. I hope we will um, have our listeners go out and explore more about that with their children. Thanks, Rachel. Pam Allen, literacy expert and author, talking about helping kids with the skills to be critical readers in the 21st century. We finish up the show with Allie Libert, a BYU student who is studying elementary education, reviewing a book entitled, Who Could That Be at This Hour? by Lemony Snicket. Lemony Snicket is the author of the series of Unfortunate Events, which is one of the series that really defined my childhood. Not that my childhood was a series of unfortunate events, but my father read them all to me. So, until recently, the only taste that I had of Lemony Snicket was the series of unfortunate events. In preparation for this review, I read a few of his picture books and one book that was a beginning reader. They were fun, cute, silly, and a little weird. The thing about Snicket's picture books is that his signature style involves a lot of long and obscure words, so I worry that for younger students, this could be maybe a stumbling block if there isn't an adult to kind of help them work through those. That being said, I really enjoy Snicket as a novelist. This one, Who Could That Be at This Hour, is appropriate for older elementary students, maybe even as early as third grade. Who Could That Be at This Hour is the first in a four-part series. The series is called All the Wrong Questions. This book was published in 2012, and they came out yearly after that until all four were out. There's also a companion novel, which is a collection of mini-mysteries. Needless to say, once you get into the Snicket universe, there's a lot to read. You have the 13 in the series of unfortunate events, the Snicket autobiography, and then these five, and then you can do what I did and even explore the picture books. There's a lot to read. But back to who could that be at this hour? The protagonist of this series is a young Lemony Snicket. Fans of the series of unfortunate events will remember that he writes himself into the story. In this series, however, he takes an even more prominent role, from narrator to protagonist. The setting is the same universe as series of unfortunate events, and there are even hints that other characters than just Snicket will cross into this series. The plot of this novel goes something like this. Snicket is whisked away into an old deserted lake town that no longer has a lake. There, he meets an old woman who has lost a valuable item, and she accuses an old enemy of her family of taking it. Snicket teams up with a girl who is the self-proclaimed news reporter of this empty town. Together, they start to wonder if the valuable item ever really belonged to the old woman, if the item is even valuable at all, and they wonder if everyone is really who they say they are. There's some danger, there's action, there's clues along the way. There might even be a budding romance. In true Snicket fashion, the reader is left with more questions than answers. A few signature Snicket elements that you'll find in this book are absent parents, grown-ups who don't listen, library investigations, mysterious characters, nonsensical elements added into an otherwise believable text, dark humor, and of course, word definitions. The theme of this book and the name of the entire series is all the wrong questions. Snicket uses questions to guide the reader through the mystery. There are several times throughout the story where a character will ask a question like, why do they want the item? 
and either another character or Snicket as the narrator will say that they should have asked a different question, like, who's really behind this? I think this is a fun way to get kids thinking about critical thinking and could be used in the classroom to study questioning, hypothesis, inferencing, and other things along those lines. Mystery is a fun genre anyways because of the way it sucks you in and makes you want to solve it. For those of you who are not familiar with Snicket's original series of unfortunate events, I would recommend it for really any reader, but they're not necessary to understand these prequel books. I even consider this one to be a little more accessible. I know some people could be deterred from unfortunate events because of the somber tone. For example, right off the bat, the kids are left orphaned. But these books, all around questions, while still dark and mysterious, feel more hopeful and more adventurous than the other series. In summary, fans of Snicket will love these additions, and newcomers might be surprised to find themselves drawn in. Enjoy your reading. That was Allie Libert, a BYU elementary education student, reviewing Who Could That Be at This Hour by Lemony Snicket. Additional book reviews are available on the World's Awaiting page on byuradio.org. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.